Throughout much of the 1600s, New France was scattered with groups of Jesuit missionaries who worked to build relationships with the indigenous peoples of Canada, known as the First Nations, with the ultimate goal of spreading Christianity. But with these new lands came new challenges, and their efforts were not without their fair share of complications. In June of 1661, Following a long delay caused by a savage bout of sickness that swept through their ranks and left many dead, an ailing band of missionaries and indigenous peoples found themselves traveling by canoe across Lake St. Jean, a massive and beautiful lake in what is now southern Quebec, that also happened to be a popular trading destination. Their plan had been to rendezvous with a group of indigenous delegates that had been sent ahead of them, with the task of gathering the peoples of the region together so that the missionaries could meet with them. But upon their arrival, the Jesuit party was instead met with some tragic news. All of their delegates were dead. During the winter, they had been overcome by a bizarre and devastating disease that ate away at their minds and caused them to suffer from an insatiable, ravenous hunger, and a very specific hunger at that a hunger for human flesh. The indigenous delegates quickly turned into monsters, viciously throwing themselves upon men, women, and children indiscriminately in a terrible frenzy that, if left unchecked, would end in the victim being killed and eaten. And no amount of flesh seemed to appease their hunger. The more they ate, the more gluttonous they became, constantly seeking out fresh prey. Obviously, this couldn't be allowed to continue, so the First Nations put a stop to the epidemic, using the only remedy that they knew for a situation like this. They killed the entire party of delegates. What exactly was it that befouled the minds of the delegates and caused this gruesome turn of events? It turns out that this occurrence was not unique. It had happened before, and it would certainly happen again. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hi there, I'm PJ, and you are listening to Simply Strange, episode 18. So glad you could join me. Today, we shall be exploring the Wendigo a little piece of folklore that I find particularly interesting. So without further ado, let's get into it. The Algonquian peoples are one of the largest and most widespread native language groups in North America, ranging all along the coast of the northeastern United States, the Atlantic coast of Canada, as well as further inland, throughout much of central Canada and around the Great Lakes and Hudson Bay. 
While there are a substantial number of groups associated with the Algonquian language, and each one of them is unique in its own right, they also share a great deal of commonalities, namely linguistic, religious, and social traits. One such commonality is the legend of the Wendigo, passed down from generation to generation through stories told on cold winter nights. Given that Algonquian culture is so widespread and diverse, so too are the intricacies of the Wendigo, and different peoples have a different description of what exactly it is. In some oral traditions, the Wendigo is portrayed as a powerful cannibal giant, a terrifying monster that would grow larger and larger with each victim that it consumed. In these stories, the Wendigo is often said to have arrived from the isolated and mysterious islands of the far north. However, a more common version of the tale is that a Wendigo is simply a human, someone whose spirit has been corrupted by greed or weakened by harsh conditions such as extreme hunger or cold, causing them to be taken over by the spirit of the Wendigo. And when this happens, this person will begin to undergo a frightening transformation. As these stories go, Wendigos are terrifying humanoid creatures. They are exceptionally thin, gaunt and emaciated, with dead, ash-colored skin that clings tightly to their bones, decomposing almost as if they were recently exhumed from a grave. Atop their head, they have pointy, elongated ears and a pair of antlers. Their eyes are sunken deep into their sockets and glow red like hot coals. Their mouth is full of sharp, pointy teeth that are barely covered by what's left of the monster's tattered, bloody lips. The whole creature reeks of rotting flesh and decay, and as it walks, it leaves behind vivid, bloody footprints in the snow. And to make them even more terrifying, the Wendigo is often credited with possession of supernatural powers. It is said that they have exceptionally well-tuned senses, including eyesight, hearing, and smell, and additionally, they can come and go with the speed of the wind and glide over deep snow, or even open water without sinking. The transformation into a Wendigo could be quick, or sometimes it could be slow and painful. Either way, the transformation is always irreversible. Regardless of the physical traits of the Wendigo, or how it came to be, in the end, it all boils down to basically the same thing. The Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being. It's a monster, with an insatiable desire to kill and consume its victims. The Wendigo is said to possess a heart of ice, and Wendigo stories occur almost exclusively during the cold winter months, when food was scarce and starvation as well as the desperate remedies that came with it, were much more present threats. The Wendigo legend has many parallels to the lives and culture of those who told it. For many people of the First Nations, it was more than just a story. It was a reminder. It served to reinforce the importance of community, and it warned of the dangers of isolation. The snowy boreal forests of the region could be dangerous, desolate places, where extreme cold and hunger were ever-present threats, and the Wendigo is a personification of these dangers, preying on the isolated and waiting for the opportune moment to strike. 
In the wilderness of the northern United States and Canada, community was critical to survival, and those who weren't willing to contribute to their community were viewed with disdain and were often cast out. The Wendigo is an embodiment of gluttony and greed, of those who are unwilling to contribute and instead choose to, literally as the story goes, live off of others, no matter the cost. And no story exemplifies this more strongly than that of Swift Runner. Swift Runner was a Native American, a member of the Cree tribe in western Canada near Fort Edmonton. For years, he worked mostly as a hunter and a trapper. He was an educated and useful member of the community, a loving husband and a caring father of six. He had a reputation as an intelligent, hardworking, and trustworthy man, a reputation that eventually helped him score a job as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. However, around the time that he got this job, his squeaky clean reputation began to take a bit of a hit. He acquired a taste for alcohol. Whiskey, in particular, he was very fond of. And soon, his newfound hobby began to spiral out of control. Reportedly, he began to drink constantly. And when he would drink, he would become violent. So violent that soon he would be referred to as the terror of the whole region. Swift Runner was fired from his job as a guide, and a short while later he was kicked out of his tribe, leaving him with no other choice but to leave. So in the winter of 1878, Swift Runner, as well as his wife, six children, brother and mother-in-law, all retreated to the forest into the wild to live off of the land in their new life of exile. For a while, neither Swift Runner nor any of his family were seen. But then, several months later, as winter began to melt into spring, Swift Runner stumbled out of the forest and into a Roman Catholic mission located in the town of St. Albert in Alberta, Canada. Quickly, a group of rather confused priests arrived to help the clearly distressed man. They asked him what was wrong, and Swift Runner recounted the dreadful turn of events that led him there. The winter had been a harsh one. It was cold, food was scarce, and he had been unable to provide for his large family, who, one by one, all starved to death. Swift Runner himself had barely managed to survive, resorting to chewing raw hide and drinking broth that he made by boiling his teepee. It was a tragic story, but the priests saw one little issue with it. Swift Runner did not look like a man who had nearly starved to death. In fact, the six-foot-tall man looked healthy as ever, and the priests were unconvinced of the accuracy of his story. But nevertheless, they allowed him to stay at the mission while he recovered. However, he soon began to act erratically. He would awake, screaming in the middle of the night, claiming that the Wendigo spirit was trying to possess him. One day, he gathered up all of the children in the mission 
and attempted to lead them into the forest for what he claimed would be a hunting trip, a plan which was foiled almost immediately by the priests. Between his unconvincing story and his odd behavior, the priests were becoming very suspicious and believed that something much more sinister may have happened to his family. So they went to the police, and the police reacted quickly, arriving at the mission and questioning Swift Runner about the events of the previous winter. They demanded that he take them to his campsite, and eventually he did. But that being said, sources are somewhat contradictory on exactly how willing Swift Runner was to help. According to some, he immediately took the police right to the spot. But according to others, he led them on a wild goose chase for days through the wilderness, feigning confusion and being entirely uncooperative. Until, that is, the police gave him some whiskey and got him liquored up enough to take them to the scene. Whatever the case, the authorities did eventually make their way to the campsite. And upon their arrival, Swift Runner showed the authorities a small grave site near the camp. The men opened the grave and found, as Swift Runner said they would, an undisturbed body. One of his sons who had died as a result of the famine. But the men weren't convinced yet. And so they began to search the rest of the camp where they were finally able to begin piecing together their own version of the events that led to the demise of Swift Runner's family. And their version did not quite match up with the story that he was telling. They found human bones scattered all across the camp, many of which were broken in half and hollow, indicating that the marrow had been sucked out. Then, near the scattered ashes of what used to be a campfire, the police found a cooking pot coated in human fat. It was quickly becoming clear to them what exactly had happened here. Following his family's death, Swift Runner had cannibalized them, thus explaining his appearance of being so healthy. And while that alone is pretty bad, there is one final detail that was even more disturbing. The police soon realized that the camp was located just 25 miles away from a Hudson's Bay Company post, a place where emergency food supplies would have been readily available. With this detail in mind, all of the evidence was pointing to this being more than just a simple case of cannibalism as a last resort to avoid starvation. And instead, it was beginning to look like Swift Runner had ruthlessly slaughtered and eaten his entire family for no reason other than some sort of madness. So he was placed under arrest. On August 16th, 1879, Swift Runner went on trial. He confessed to the murders, but he claimed that it was not truly him who had committed the atrocious acts, that instead he had been possessed by the spirit of a wendigo, that he was no more than a puppet a slave to the will of his bloodthirsty puppeteer. His argument, however, left the jury wholly unconvinced. And after just 30 minutes of deliberation, Swift Runner was sentenced to death. Interestingly enough, though, Swift Runner would not be the only one to fall victim to this strange madness. And soon it took a name, Wendigo Psychosis. 
And in a way, Wendigo psychosis causes the exact same results that Wendigo possession does, just through slightly less supernatural means. It's a term that made its way into the medical vocabulary of the West in the early 20th century as a way to explain cases like those of the Jesuit delegates and of Swift Runner. While its validity is highly disputed, its subscribers believe it to be a syndrome that creates an intense and uncontrollable craving for human flesh. This condition is often spurred on by the environment of those who suffered it, situations where people were subject to anxiety or isolation in harsh environments where food is scarce. It's an interesting juxtaposition, really. According to Algonquian folklore, the Wendigo is capable of consuming the spirit and making a person susceptible to cannibalism. But on the other hand, Wendigo psychosis ends with the same outcome. But here, the corruption is instead the cultural impact of the Wendigo tale, which ingrains the idea and circumstance, freezing weather, famine, isolation, all play a part in fueling the idea until it becomes a reality. And when it does become a reality, it does so with disastrous results. On a frigid December morning in 1879, Swift Runner was executed by hanging, and he remains one of the most well-known victims of the alleged Wendigo psychosis. While Wendigo psychosis is certainly one way for the Wendigo to strike, more often than not, the damage was done instead by way of fear and superstition. Jack Fiddler was born in roughly 1839, in the boreal forests of what is now northwestern Ontario, a vast stretch of sparsely populated land covered in coniferous trees and too many lakes and rivers to count. His father, Porcupine standing sideways was a mysterious figure with a cloudy history who, sometime in the late 1700s, had arrived from the east and was adopted into the Sucker Clan, a local Anishinaabe First Nations group. He eventually became a well-respected political and spiritual leader, a path that his son would eventually take as well. Jack followed his father's footsteps and became a highly regarded shaman. He was renowned for his ability to conjure animals and to protect people with his spells. And most importantly, he was believed to possess the power to defeat a Wendigo. As the story goes, throughout his life, Jack killed 14 of the monsters. Some of his slayings were against Wendigos sent by rival shamans, intent on destroying Jack's tribe, and others were by the request of the family of the ill tasking him with ending a loved one's misery before they turned fully into the beast. As the clan's leader, and the only one with the ability to defend against such monsters, it became his duty to do so. These were, in the mind of the Sucker people, mercy killings. 
Around August of 1906, Jack's brother, Joseph, approached him. His daughter had grown very ill. She was suffering from some sort of delirium, going through fits of convulsions where she would moan and thrash about uncontrollably. Joseph believed that she was turning into a wendigo. So on September 1st, 1906, Jack and Joseph did the only thing that they knew how to do in such situations. They destroyed the monster. Jack and Joseph gathered together in a wigwam near Sandy Lake and gathered around the unfortunate woman as she writhed hopelessly on the ground. Jack held her down as her father wrapped a cloth around her neck and together the men strangled her. Then they wrapped her in a cloth and they buried her. Now at this point it's the early 1900s. Western influence had already made a deep impact on most of the First Nations, but the Sucker Clan were among the quickly shrinking few who were still living autonomously and had very little interaction with the outside world, nor its legal or religious influence. Outside of the Sucker Clan, no one really knew about these mercy killings, nor Jack's claim to have destroyed 14 Wendigos. But in 1907, this changed when two members of the Northwest Mounted Police passing through the area happened to have a run-in with a man named Norman Ray, an in-law of the Fiddlers. Norman told them of Jack's power against the Wendigo, and viewing this case through Western eyes, they saw Fiddler as nothing more than a murderer. They immediately went to the sucker camp and arrested Jack and Joseph Fiddler for murder. Then they took them away to a nearby settlement called Norway House, where they awaited trial. But for Jack Fiddler, that trial never came. After about 15 weeks of captivity, the aging man broke free. He ran into the woods and hung himself. His brother, on the other hand, remained in captivity and still went on trial. Despite his people arguing that the murder of his daughter was euthanasia, a mercy killing. The Wendigo argument did not stand in Western eyes. And in a very controversial ruling, Joseph was sentenced to death. However, the decision was appealed. For the next year, efforts continued to change the course of the ruling and to free Joseph Fiddler. And in 1909, they actually succeeded, and Joseph was set to be released. But in a final cruel twist of fate, Joseph died of sickness in prison, three days before his scheduled release. Wendigo sightings and cases of Wendigo psychosis became fewer and further between as Western culture continued to intrude upon the First Nations, and by the 20th century, Wendigo sightings slowed to a crawl, and the monster now exists 
mostly as a legend. However, the horrible deeds committed by those afflicted by the Wendigo are just as present as they ever were. It's difficult to ignore the similarities between certain violent crimes and the supposed symptoms of Wendigo psychosis. Now, they just masquerade under different names. In July of 2008, Vince Lee, a 40-year-old Chinese-Canadian man, boarded a Greyhound bus in Erickson, Manitoba. He chose a seat on the back of the bus beside 22-year-old Tim McLean, and he quietly sat down. McLean, who was near the tail end of a bus ride halfway across Canada, did little to acknowledge him, and a short while later he fell asleep against the window. As the day began to slip into night, the bus continued east toward Winnipeg. For about an hour, nothing of note happened, until suddenly, and without provocation, Lee produced a large hunting knife from his jacket and began to savagely attack the still sleeping man beside him. His sudden outburst didn't appear to be a result of rage. In fact, witnesses were struck by just how calm Lee was as he methodically stabbed his victim over and over. Seeing the commotion, the bus driver slammed the brakes and pulled the bus over to the side of the road. As his passengers escaped, the driver made a desperate attempt to wrestle the attacker off of his victim, but was fended off by the swinging hunting knife. Realizing that it was too late to do anything to save McLean, the driver then locked Lee inside the bus. He and the rest of the passengers watched through the windows in horror as the sickening scene continued to develop. Lee decapitated his victim and then began to eat pieces of the corpse. Ultimately, Lee was arrested, and he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. In March of 2009, Lee's case went to court, and he was found not criminally responsible by way of insanity. He spent six years in a high-security mental health facility. In May of 2015, he moved into a group home. And in February of 2017, less than nine years after the attack, he was granted absolute discharge. Prior to the attack, Vince Lee worked a handful of odd jobs to get by, one of which was a newspaper delivery route. Interestingly enough, on July 20th, 2008, just 10 days before the attack, Lee was delivering copies of the Edmonton Sun that included an interview with an ethno-historian by the name of Nathan Carlson an interview that dove deep into the legend of the Wendigo, told the story of Swift Runner, and describes in detail the deadly cannibalistic urges that come with Wendigo possession. Maybe this is purely coincidence, but at the same time, the similarities between Vince Lee's attack and the symptoms of Wendigo psychosis are difficult to ignore. So as of this morning, it's Easter Sunday, actually, uh, that I'm recording this. 
early in the morning. No better way to kick off Easter Sunday than to lock yourself in a closet and talk about cannibal monsters for an hour. Um, anyway, as of this morning, every episode of Simply Strange has now been downloaded at least a thousand times. And I think that's so cool. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's listening and supporting the show and saying nice things on social media and leaving nice reviews. And it's all really awesome. And I just wanted to say thanks. I appreciate it. As always, if you would like to follow the show on social media, Simply Strange is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So come hang out there if you want. And if you enjoy the show and haven't gotten a chance to leave a review on Apple Podcasts yet, please consider doing that. Legend has it that it really helps people to find the show. I would also like to extend a huge, enormous, gargantuan, Mount Everest-sized thank you to Daniel H., the show's newest supporter on Patreon. Thank you so much. If anyone else would like to become a supporter on Patreon, feel free to check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash simplystrange. I'll put that link in the description as well. Um, thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. It's very much appreciated. And finally, Simply Strange will be back in two weeks with another new episode for you. And until then, I'd like to introduce you to another show, Pretend Radio. I'm pretty excited to have this trailer on the show this week. It's a really awesome podcast and a really cool twist on the true crime genre. So I think you'll like it. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money. Me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he, just, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members. Anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts.